looking at a parable that looks at the issue of humility, the parable of the best seeds. And the Bible reading is Luke chapter 14, verse 1 to 11. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Heavenly Father, as we open our Bibles, as we look at your word, we pray that you'd help us to have honest hearts before you, especially as we look at this very searching subject of humility. Lord, we ask now that you'd speak to us and help us to act in response to what you say. Amen. The Parable of the Best Seats There was a meal at the house of a prominent Pharisee. Some of the Pharisees were also members of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And this meal could have been at such a person's house. Now a typical meal setting would be a low U-shaped set of tables and people would not sit at chairs but recline on cushions or couches, feet facing out as it's easier to eat with your hands than your feet. Well, it's likely that Jesus was either at the top table as he was being carefully watched and so far we've seen that people like the Pharisees and the experts in the law were generally on the hunt to trap Jesus in some way. But regards the man who invited Jesus, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's simply curious about Jesus. Verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Now tension rises at the meal as somehow a seriously ill man has come into the room. Verse 2. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Now is this a deliberate plant? It's a Sabbath, a Saturday, the Jewish day of rest. There were strict laws about not working. Will Jesus work and heal the man? The eyes are on Jesus. The Lord Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't fear the trap but he puts the challenge back to them before anyone says anything. Verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. They can't answer because they are trapped by their own hypocrisy. So taking hold of the man, he healed him 
and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Now let's not lose sight of the fact that before the Lord tells the parable, he has instantaneously healed a man in a way that was clear, verifiable, public, without fuss or fanfare. A man who was seriously ill, visibly ill, with an awful swelling, he was healed in an instant. And they had nothing to say. Jesus challenged their thinking, asking what they would do if someone or something precious to them fell into a pit on the Saturday. They had nothing to say. They were so screwed up with the legalism regarding the Sabbath, so focused on trying to find some scandal to gossip concerning Jesus, so focused on criticism that when a mighty miracle is done before their eyes, they have nothing to say. They can't answer truly because their motives and prejudices get in the way. And because they feared peer opinion more than God, they were always anticipating and second-guessing what other people will think if they appear to think that Jesus must be the real deal. They just cannot answer straight with honest hearts. Now logically, Jesus has shown that he is the Messiah on this and other occasions. Therefore, all they think now, all the ways that they had interpreted the Old Testament law, they should be saying, Lord, help us to understand. What should we do on Saturday? Tell us and we'll follow you. You are obviously the, the Lord of the law, that's clear. Your miracles prove it. But no, they were entrenched and trenched and twisted by their legalism. They had nothing to say. Well, the Lord lets that silence hang. And I'm sure that people start to talk and chat again and the noise builds up. And then... Noticing the way that the guests had muscled in to get the best seats, Jesus speaks to them and tells them a parable, the parable of the best seats. And the punchline is verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Well, verse 7, we see how Jesus notices how the guests pick the places of honour at the table. And then he tells the parable. And the parable sounds like really plain advice on etiquette and how to behave when at dinner. It's not a story type parable, but it is introduced by, as a parable by Luke. And this is because it's not advice to be taken literally all the time, but a memorable picture of a principle to always follow. Don't exalt yourself. Be humble and get on. Let God do any exalting that needs to be done. Now, one writer points out that the whole feast which Jesus attends is the real-life parable. The meal is the parable. The meal is a story. And then in verse 8, Jesus says the advice. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now imagine the humiliation as you have made a beeline for the best seat, nearest the VIP, nearest the host, 
and with smug satisfaction you, you settle yourself down and feel so important to be in such a position. And now the people in the community will look upon you with greater respect. But then the VIP's best friend or the host's best friend comes in and you're in the wrong place and you're asked to give way. And with great embarrassment, your head held low, daring not to look anyone in the eye, you're led to the furthest place away from the head table. People smirk and you feel humiliated. Your bubble of pride has burst. Now, our wedding meals tend to have the tables and seating carefully planned in advance, but there can be politics going on behind that, behind the way things are set out, matchmaking sometimes, feuds, either stirring up by putting people in the wrong places or the right places depending on how you look at it, all factors which can influence who is planned to sit where. Now imagine there's no seating plan and all the guests have to choose and all the politics, the matchmaking, those feuds, the likes and the dislikes all play their part. Now, think of a society where the seating is so important, a community that will place great value on those who sit near the most important person at the feast. From one angle, it would be quite humorous to be a fly on the wall and observe and see how people make their choices. It could be, and probably has been, the subject of a comedy sketch. So, this parable is not an instruction to literally always give way and sit on the lowest seat. Now imagine a whole bunch of Christians taking this literally, going to a wedding, and all insisting that everyone else sits in the best seats. No, you sit here. No, you sit there. No, you sit there. It really would be a comedy sketch. This parable, it's a parable. So we need to lay this little story down and compare our attitudes and behaviour in the light of the main point of the parable. And that's the main thing the main point of the parable. Verse 11, we get it. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The guests, the Lord notices, were seeking that place of honour. In the kingdom of heaven, we are not to seek our own honour. In Luke chapter 11, verse 2, Jesus says to his disciples, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom. Our chief aim is to honour and love God, to humble ourselves before him, and to let God honour us as he wills. So the parable is about humility. Now what is humility? Well, one definition, or part of the definition, is by C.S. Lewis, who writes that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And we see that corroborated in scripture Philippians 2 verse 3 do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves thinking of others over and above ourselves so humility is not being self-focused but looks out to others but before we go further into positively describing what humility is let's be negative let's look at false humility now, Warren Wiersbe points out that Charles Dickens wrote the classic novel David Copperfield, creating an unattractive character called Uriah Heep, a greedy, insincere, ambitious manipulator who constantly proclaimed his 
humbleness. But Uriah Heep was not humble. He was proud and self-absorbed and self-serving. The words that came out of his mouth were false. Someone who is really humble is not even aware of their humility. They aren't absorbed with themselves at all. What a high aim that is. Now, false humility could also be described as demeaning yourself or your work in order that others will praise you. Doing humble tasks to prove yourself unto others or to get praise from others. Now, true humility is not constantly deprecating yourself. It is being realistic about yourself, but not insulting yourself. You are not valued by the sum of your latest set of failures, but by how God sees you and what you are becoming in Him. That means that we don't need to demean ourselves to make God more favourable to us or to get praise from others. Now, what is lack of humility? Well, it could be described as being self-absorbed, lacking in empathy, self-serving, boastful, arrogant, a know-it-all attitude, the frequent use of the perpendicular pronoun, I, reluctance or refusal to see our own sins and to own them, to take responsibility for them, blaming others and little self-examination. See, lack of humility is really pride. Pride is self-belief and self-absorption that gets in the way of humility before God and trust in God. And as we know, not trusting God is serious. There's a very sad ending uh, to the life of one of the better kings of Judah in Old Testament times. In 2 Chronicles 26 verse 16, it says, But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense, which to do. King Uzziah lost his humility when his power went to his head and pride took over. Lacking humility is being proud and being proud is not trusting God and ultimately not trusting God means no salvation. So pride and lack of humility is an ugly and dangerous sin that all Christians need to root out of uh, out of their lives, every trace of it. And of course we need the help of the Holy Spirit, but we need the humility to ask for help. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The attitudes and the thinking that we, from our hearts is so important. Now, what is it to be practically humble? Well, it's not weakness. If I am not able to exert myself, if I am intimidated by people around me who are stronger or more forthright than me, then that doesn't make me automatically the most humble person. It could actually stir the opposite. To be humble means that where necessary, I don't use my strength to exert myself. I don't push myself forward when I might, because I want to serve the best, best interests of others. To be Humble means I am willing to allow the less strong to speak, to give them a chance, because I want to serve their best interests and I have their good at heart. Now, if I am weak compared to others in any way, 
my humility will be again in wanting to serve the best interests of, of others. To rejoice in seeing them use their gifts and abilities. And not to steam and stew in jealousy and frustration that I can't be like them. The reality is that if you are a Christian, you will have a spiritual gift. That will be what other people around you need. So a more honest view, a more realistic view of yourself is, I am useful. Even though I might be weaker in some areas than others. I am useful because of God's grace in me. It just may be that my gifting is less upfront, or less visible. But if God has chosen for me to serve one way, I need to be humble under God's wisdom that he's given me this gift and to revel in serving others with what I can do. In a sense, to put it rather crudely, it's getting over ourselves and being useful. So humility is not weakness. It is a servant-hearted attitude that focuses away from me, out from self, and towards honouring God and others. Humility is a realistic view of self. It's not an act. All that I am in Christ is undeserved. I know that. I am saved and secure because of grace. And any good changes in me, any growth in Christian graces, is because of grace and grace alone. This is true. So, I am not intrinsically good or wise. I am a reclaimed sinner. I cannot boast about myself. I can realistically only give glory to God. This is realistic. You are a sinner. You have nothing to boast in. You have failed God and, and your fellow human being many times. But if you are a Christian, you are saved, you are forgiven, you are justified by grace, you are a child of God, you are a prince or princess in the kingdom of heaven. So, you are a sinner saved by grace. And if you have troubling sins, confess them to God. Accept God's forgiveness and do the Lord who saved you the honour of being grateful and believing what he has done in your life and rejoice in him and how he has lifted you up out of the pit of your sin. So, keep humble, own your sin, don't be arrogant, but don't keep insulting the work of grace that you are in Christ. We need to be realistic, but we also need to see the reality of what God has done in us and what he's doing in us. John Calvin wrote this, The humbleness is not a despairing, defeated self-destruction of our being, but a discovering of our destiny as the children of God. The paradox of evangelical humility is that when we give ourselves to the Lord and die to human autonomy and pride, then we come to know the power of God in a myriad of vital and exalting ways. So humility is getting over ourselves and being useful. There is a need for not being self-obsessed and to be God and outward focused in our thinking. But there is in it a healthy self-awareness and self-examination too. So let's have a, if you like, a made up modern day parable of humble and healthy self-awareness. A husband and wife are on a car journey. They're going to a place they haven't been before and the roads are not familiar. But the man has an idea of the route and he's pressing on. After a while his wife gets suspicious. When she recognises a street and a stand of trees that she's pretty sure they've passed by before but going the other way. Are you sure we're headed right dear? she asks. The healthy and humble self-examination is, in this case, willing to listen to the question. Secondly, 
willing to be corrected, which might involve stopping and looking at the map. Thirdly, willing to change direction, having acknowledged that you were going the wrong way at first. And I know because I've been the man who hasn't, or at least not at first, been willing to listen, to be corrected and to change direction. Now, a healthy and humble self-awareness is, one, being willing to listen. Being willing to listen as the Holy Spirit nudges our conscience as we read the Bible, as we're convicted of sin, when we're going off track. Secondly, being willing to stop and look at the map, which of course is the Bible. And not just to search for out-of-context verses that justify us in our route, but look at the instructions and principles in context, in the light of the Gospel. But we need to be willing willing to look at the map, to see where we went wrong and to see what's the right way to go. Thirdly, we need to be willing to get back on the right road, acknowledging our mistake. Now that is humble and healthy self-examination. It may happen many times in a day, it might be quick and over before we get into deep trouble, or it might be a more thorough search of our hearts and our Bibles when we need to, to get help to get out of entrenched, deep entrenched sin. If we see that our hearts are getting proud and hardened, our consciences are getting calloused, then we may well need to spend some very serious time humbling ourselves before God. It says in James 4 verse 6, the scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So, humility involves a realistic view of ourselves, a healthy and humble self-awareness, and also seeing ourselves in the light of what God, in his grace, has done and is doing in us and for us. And humility involves a realistic view of others. And this is the next major point. Humility is a realistic view of others. People are fundamentally like you. Intrinsically, you're no better. There are people that are more messed up, who manifest more sinful behaviour than you, maybe. There are people who manifest less outward sin than you. But fundamentally, we're from the same pit, and we have the same sinful potential in our heart. Any differences between people are down to things like family upbringing, life pressures, choices made. But overall, there but for the grace of God go I. So our attitudes and relationships with others needs to keep a realistic view of self and others. Romans 12 verse 3 says, For by the grace given me I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. To be humble means that we tend to look for the good in people rather than the bad. We tend to rejoice in what God has done in each other, rather than feel threatened by the gifts and abilities of others. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. Humility cannot be practiced or learned in isolation. 
we see ourselves rightly before God and in relationship to Him, but also to each other. We hallow the mighty name of God and we need to learn to value each other. Humility has to have meaningful relationships in which to grow. It is something that we need to learn. We need to build into our thinking and attitudes. We need to seek humility as an attitude that is part of our character. And as we do it, it will start to become us. And we will be less conscious of it and ourselves, but just get on with being useful. Humble, serving and useful. So, in conclusion, just quote from Gordon Keddy, one commentator. Humility is a fruit of saving grace and evidence of saving faith. Coming to know the Christ of the Bible and the cross cannot but involve a deep awareness of being humbled before God. And one thing we need to remember is this, that Christian is someone who should live in constant amazement over receiving the grace of God. That grace of God humbles us, but it's not a despairing self-abasement, but it is a, a humility that is in constant amazement and thankfulness. And therefore, learning true humility leads to being a joyful and a praising people, a people who are rejoicing what God has done. So, true humility, again, isn't a self-flagellation, it isn't a, a, a demeaning of ourselves, a deprecation of ourselves, but it's a trust in God, leaning upon his kindness, his goodness in saving us and responding in joyful, joyful praise. And if we keep our hearts humbly rejoicing in the Lord, we will grow in a humility that leads to a deeper empathy and fellowship with others too. Because as we are rejoicing in what God has done for us that we don't deserve, we recognize that that is what God has done in our brothers and sisters around us, that we've come from the same pit. And therefore, rather than seeing each other as rivals or, or, or with jealousy or with resentment, we see each other as people in whom God is doing the same miracle that he's done in us, people who are recipients of the same grace, who themselves are recognizing who God is and humble before him. And we're, we're humble before him together. And we learn to, to love and accept and in humility value others of ourselves, looking for the, the good in each other, looking for things to thank God for regards each other. So learning humility is a very important thing, it's a fundamental thing, and it is part, as Gordon Keddy says, it's a, it is a fruit of saving grace, an evidence of saving faith. Now let's think about this as we draw to a close and as, and as we pray. Are there elements in your life of a lack of humility that you need to work on. Maybe talk with one of the church leaders, one of the home group leaders, one of the pastors, and let's get the help that we need. Let's have the humility to ask for help. Certainly, let's ask the Lord to help us to grow in humility before Him and with each other. Maybe you can see an element of false humility a way that you use a humble way of speaking to gain people's favour. Maybe even somehow you think that God will be more merciful to you if you 
put on a humble act or say things in a certain way? Are we using the appearance of humility to manipulate others, to make them more sympathetic towards us? Or maybe using that as a way to boost our egos, to make us feel better, to make us feel more proud, which is, which is an ironic thing, where humility should be the opposite of that. So let's pray and ask God to help us to, sh to be more humble people and to be aware of a false humility. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we bring our hearts to you and we all have to confess that we still desperately need to learn to be humble before you. Lord, you are the great creator of the universe. Lord, we're so tiny and small before you, we, we must be humble to acknowledge you and understand you, or even start to understand who you are. Not only that, Lord, we need to be humble before you because we are sinners and you are the judge of the universe. We are accountable to you, and by rights we deserve to be punished by you. Lord, we ought to be humble because we have failed and sinned and fallen short of your glory. But Lord, we also are humbled. Humbled, Lord, with a, an immense joy and thanksgiving because you who could judge us and condemn us outright have chosen to save us. And all those who are trusting and believing in your Son, Lord, we are recipients of your grace, undeserved favour, Lord, forgiveness, peace with you. And Lord, we are humbled not just because of your awesome greatness, your majesty, the fact that you are judged, but because you have saved us and loved us and are so kind to us and you welcome us. And Lord, we come humbled, humbled and thankful and rejoicing. Lord, teach us to be more humble. Help us to have a realistic view of ourselves. Help us, Lord, also to have a realistic view of each other. We're not, none of us are perfect. Father, we know that. But Lord, sometimes we forget that and we get smug thoughts coming to our minds and we compare ourselves with others Lord as your word says help us to consider others better than ourselves to have that humility to look for the good in one another things that we can see that you're doing in other people's lives and rejoice in them rather than being resentful give us a humility Lord to serve others Lord we also pray you'd protect our hearts from a false humility from a way of manipulating with talking in a certain way or behaving in a certain way to to kind of get people to be more favourable towards us or to boost our own egos with their with their sympathetic responses. Lord help us to get over ourselves and help us to simply get on with being useful, honouring you, serving others. Lord, we pray for help to grow in humility and that it might be a grace, Lord, which shines out to the world around us that speaks of your saving work in us. Lord, we come to you with our hearts. Lord, teach us humility. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.